I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey. Monica. O'Hanlon Production. What's the difference between a dead body and a living body? They both look the same. They're both made of the same material, same elements. It's all right there. The only thing that's missing is the spirit. Thank you so much for clicking on this little podcast. My name is Monica O'Hanlon, and you're listening to Dying With Mon. Now, obviously, this year with the pandemic, death has been a huge subject. Even if you've never had someone close to you pass away, this year in particular, death has been highlighted around the world. Whether we like it or not, it's taken over our screens and our conversations. So why on earth would I dedicate an entire series to it? Well, if you're anything like me and you find the idea of death scary or confronting, these conversations might make you feel a bit better. Or maybe you enjoy the topic and find it really interesting. Either way, this series is for you. We're going on a journey through life, death, and potentially an afterlife through the lenses of different religions and movements. The Church of All Worlds is an American neo-pagan religious group whose stated mission is to evolve a network of information, mythology, and experience that provides a context and stimulus for reawakening Gaia and reuniting her children through tribal community dedicated to responsible stewardship and evolving consciousness. For our very first episode, we sit down with the founder of the Church of All Worlds, Oberon Zell. If you haven't heard of him, you are certainly in for a treat. We speak about everything from starting the church in the 60s to how his wife, Morning Glory, came up with the term polyamory to describe her relationship with Oberon and their five-way marriage. We also chat about past lives, the afterlife, and everything in between. He is an incredibly insightful guy and it was just so lovely chatting with him. But before we deep dive into the Church of All Worlds, now is the perfect time to take a second and hit subscribe or the follow button wherever you're listening. Done? Fabulous. Here's Oberon Zell. For anyone at home who may not be familiar with the church, are you able to give us a bit of an overview on the history and the beliefs and I guess what the Church of All Worlds is all about? Well, sure, uh, I can try to do that. Uh, although it's a little tricky when you talk about beliefs because that's almost one of the first things is we're not really much into belief per se. We don't require that people have to believe anything. We have um, our premises and positions and attitudes and opinions and all kinds of stuff, but not really beliefs per se. But that notwithstanding, we were initially inspired, oh my goodness, um, it's, it's nearly 60 years ago, by a science fiction novel called Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein. 
that inspired the whole generation back in the 60s. This was the book was published in 1961, and it was a germinal uh, book of that era, very influential. And in the process of the story, a church is uh, conceived that is called the Church of All Worlds. And we liked the ideas and the premises, so we adopted that and, can, and then developed such a church. Um, the, the whole, all the details in the whole history obviously is not in the story. It's just a science fiction story in the future world that hasn't happened yet after the first um, human landing on Mars. And the story is that the first uh, expedition crashes and everybody's killed, but a baby is able to be rescued and raised by um, an ancient Martian race of very wise ancient Martians. And they raise this kid with no idea of what he is at all. They just raise him in their culture. Like we go to the jungle maybe and bring back a baby chimpanzee and raise it up in human culture and teach it how to use sign language and make tools and wear clothes and stuff. Well, imagine if we took one of those chimps back to the jungle and then turned him loose among his own people with all that he knows. And that's the way the story goes because um, 20 some years later, another expedition from Earth is more successful and they find the kid and bring him back to Earth, which is a place he's never been. But this alien perspective, and in the process of the story, everything that we take for granted in our society, our culture, religion, politics, relationships, all of this stuff is examined from this alternative perspective. What, what's another way that these things might be? And, and this is something only science fiction can provide, that idea of what does it mean to be human from another perspective. You know. So it's quite a fascinating story. It's the first science fiction book that really addressed issues, especially around sex and relationships. And the insights are rather profound, and they were hugely influential to many, many people back in those days. And they remain so. So um, in the process of the story, our, uh, our, our hero uh, uh, comes up with this church because the church is... Um, outside of the normal legal parameters. Uh, and there's kind of a blueprint on how one might go about creating such a thing. We say, well, let's see if we can do that. And we did. That was a long time ago. And the, the seminal key uh, ritual of the entire thing is the sharing of water to indicate a sharing of life, because on Mars, water is very scarce and, um, and very precious. But, but water is the essence of all life. All life anywhere in the universe is dependent on water. So to share water um, is not just symbolically, but actually um, the essence of sharing life. So there's a little ceremony that says water shared is life shared. May you never thirst. May you always drink deeply. And another element of the book that's crucial is the theology, which is that of imminent divinity. Not that God or divinity is somewhere out there long ago, far away in another galaxy, something like that. But that we are, each of us, extensions of that divinity, just as the water that we are made of is universal. The spirit within us is also universal and is just as much a part of that universal spirit as the water in our glass is part of the universal water of the cosmos. And that was a very profound insight. And it's um, expressed in the phrase, thou art God, or thou art goddess, recognizing that. And in the story, as in our real life, this especially manifests in the act of lovemaking. 
you know, which is uh, regarded as a form of worship. In fact, the essential form of worship where you look into your partner's eyes at the moment of, uh, of, of orgasm and you realize that you're looking into a mirror and you know, and you say with tears streaming down your face, you say, thou art God, thou art goddess. And you really feel it, you really grok it. And the word grok, G-R-O-K, is a Martian word from the novel that means drink, literally. But it also means to take something in so completely that it becomes a part of you. And that word is now part of the official language. It's in the dictionaries and everything else. It's very profound. There's a lot more, of course. And um, it laid the foundation for what we now have as the polyamory movement, the, the idea that love need not necessarily be confined to one other person, that, that uh, it may be expansive. It may be something that can be more inclusive, and that can be okay. So there's a lot about that in the story. The definition of love that's presented in the story was so revolutionary. It was love is that condition wherein another person's happiness is essential to your own. And, and that was pretty profound. So anyway, this was an inspiration. Um, and that's, um, that's what we've been doing for the last 60 years, <laughs> is developing and expanding these premises. But they gave rise when we finally decided... In the very earliest days, we were just a water brotherhood. It was just a college, bunch of college students. And we expanded. We shared water with people. We brought them in and became kind of a secret society. And by the time we graduated, there were about 100 of us. And after that, as we dispersed to our respective graduate schools and lives, we discussed what we should do with this because it was really quite profound what we had. And... Um, and we kind of debated and we decided to, well, there was people who felt we should just keep it a secret society because that was cool and they were happy with that. But some of us, myself included, felt that this is something that we should take out into the world because it had meant a lot to us to find that we were not alone. That in fact, these ideas that we found reflected were deep, ones we'd always held. We just didn't know there was anybody else. And so when we realized there were, we felt, well, we can't just hold this to ourselves. There must be others of us out there. So we thought we should, you know, raise it up the flagpole and say, hey, here we are. If you're one of us, here we are. Come on over. And when we came out publicly with that as uh, the Church of All Worlds and incorporated and got, you know, noticed, somebody asked, well, what kind of a religion is this? Are you some Christian sect? Are you one of these Eastern groups? I mean, new religious cults and things were popping up, you know, out of the woodwork in those days. And I said, well, I guess you could say we're pagans because I identified very strongly with the ancient pagan mythology and, and stories that, that I, I grew up on with the myths and legends of all peoples and the holiday customs and the songs and folk tales and all that stuff. And that was really the only term that that included all of that. So um, that worked, you know, and I started running into other groups and other people. There would be a bunch of druids off somewhere, a bunch of people doing Greek stuff or Egyptian things. And I would reach out to them and say, hey, you guys, you guys sound like a lot of pagans and we're pagans and let's all be pagans together. And they'd go, yeah, that's what we are. So it became a umbrella term for a whole religious movement that is now... Um, one of the largest religions in the entire English-speaking world and growing fast. It's huge. 
you know, not just in the United States, but in Australia and the British Isles. And, and it's beginning to start emerging um, in many uh, other countries around the world that are starting to reclaim their ancient past and their heritage and their ancestral legacy before they were, you know, conquered by, you know, Christians or Muslims or whoever conquered them. They look back to their heritage, their roots, and it's it's pagan. So some of the things that we hold in common is that we're all children of the same mother, Mother Earth, that we're all related, we're all kin, we, we are not separate, we are not separate races or people or nations or languages, we are all basically, um, well, children of the same mother, you know, that's very important. We celebrate the cycle of the seasons rather than, um, that's another pagan thing, pagans don't celebrate the birth or death of saviors and messiahs and people like that. We celebrate the turning of the year, the cycle of the seasons, the equinoxes and solstices and the days in between them. We just passed Mabon, fall equinox, the, the, uh, that point in the, in the calendar when the day and night are equal. And we're moving on towards Samhain, as we call it, the season of death at uh, what is popularly called Halloween. And after that comes winter solstice, Yule, and the cycle goes around. There's eight of these. And we hold very strongly that something we hold in common with virtually all pagans, past and present, everywhere in the world, because we're all a part of the great turning of the earth through the seasons. So it's this universal stuff that we hold dear and, and, and precious. So there's a little background. Wow. Hopefully that's something. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I feel like I could talk to you all day about this stuff. It's so interesting. Let's quickly, let's turn it back to the polyamory thing, because I think that is really interesting. And I have a lot of friends that practice polyamory. So when we spoke over email, I asked you if you were, because we only had first names, I asked you if you were Oberon Zell Ravenheart, and you said that the Ravenheart add-on was a family name for the Collective Five. Is that right? So you were part of a five-way marriage? Yes, we were. Um, Morning Glory, my beloved life mate, and I, well, uh, she died of cancer six years ago, but we had 40 years together, and half of that time we were in group marriages, which were wonderful, absolutely wonderful. The first one, we had four adults and three kids, and that ran for about 10 years, and and people kind of moved all on in their lives, and the kids grew up and all. And and then um, we uh, forged a uh, a second one, the Ravenhearts, which was five adults. Uh, by that time, where most of the kids were out, we only had one kid at that in that group. But it was all wonderful, absolutely fabulous. What a you know, it was some of the most beautiful time. Now we're still very close to all these people. Oh, people have scattered and moved on with their lives. Um, Morning Glory's death. You know, it was a major watershed there, and people moved on. So we really think of Ravenheart now as more of a clan name, you know. But for a long time, we lived together, and we had a family business, and we, you know, did everything together. And we slept on rotating schedules, and we, you know, we it was, it was a wonderful thing. And in the process of the first one of these, uh, somewhere in the middle of it, our, our um, other wife, giant Diane, um, and was having a conversation with Morning Glory. And she said, you're always talking about these these rules. It, the conversation had been that somebody having an open marriage wasn't following the rules because they were like cheating or something. So Diane said, why don't you write an article 
about the rules, what they are to make this work. Because we were doing fine. You know, we had absolutely no problems at all. So she did. And the article was called A Bouquet of Lovers. And it was published at, um, at Beltane of 1990 in our magazine, Green Egg, which we which our award-winning magazine, which is now online, but it's the longest-running pagan publication. It goes back to 1968. It's forever. And um, in the process of writing the article, she needed to find the right language to describe what we were talking about. And the language that was popularly used was things like, you know, monogamy versus polygamy and, uh, and lots of other words that people were groping for. But they had the gammy in it, which means marriage. And it really wasn't about how do you describe having multiple lovers in a positive relationship? And we needed a word for multiple lovers. And after experimenting around with various attempts at that, Morning Glory had the insight, well, how about polyamory? We can combine the the um, the Greek uh, poly and the Latin amory, and, and it just clicked. It was just the perfect word. And so we started using it to describe it. She wrote it in the article. It caught on. It started spreading, and it, it became a vast movement of hundreds of thousands of people. It's huge. You know, for a <laughs> while, we were very we were very involved in the early day, days. We were, there were conferences and events and festivals and interviews, and we were called the first family of polyamory. We got you know people came out and did TV shows of us and all that kind of stuff. And now it's all just become mainstream. And, and recently. We, we saw that in Massachusetts, polyamory was now a legal form of marriage, officially, with that name. You know? Wow. So, wow. That's so wild. What an interesting story. I honestly, I'd never even thought about where that term came from. Um, could we quickly, though, uh, just take it back a few beats? You just mentioned the children. Now, did they come out of the marriage or... They all came in with the with us. Um, each of us had one kid from our previous marriage, is the way it was. And so our kids grew up as brothers and sisters. And they, they still have that relationship all these years later, although um, now they're starting to die off. My son, who was the oldest in the first of the of the kids, died a few years ago, sadly. But the other kids, are they're very close. They're, they love each other. They still consider us to be, well, me I'm, and the other members of our family to be their parents. Morning Glory is gone. You know, the, the time marching on and people dying is something I'm really not quite getting used to, really. I, I wish they would stop doing that, but it happens. And um, but, but we feel very successful. We now have grandchildren, you know, that are part <laughs> of all of this. So that's a wonderful Amazing. thing. Amazing. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Before we get on to the uh, the topic of dying, which um, yeah, I'm really interested to pick your brain about. With these marriages, does gender kind of come into play, or is it free for all? Free, free for all. I've never really understood the rule in in some cultures where you can only allowed to have one husband and then lots of wives. I don't really quite get that. Um, our first marriage, we had um, uh, two husbands and two wives. In our second one, we had 
two husbands and three wives. Um, but that really isn't a consideration, you know. Uh, I just don't see any reason why gender should be a factor in the relationship. It, it wasn't with us, you know. I never really have understood why people want to put limitations on who other people may love. I can see people deciding who they may love, but I, I don't understand why people think that other people's love lives should be somehow um, their responsibility, you know. I totally agree with you 100%. Could you say then that sexuality is fluid in the Church of All Worlds? Yeah, pretty much. We really don't really have any um, any opinions on it, except that people should be um, consenting adults, you know, and um, treat each other right. And there's a there's a phrase in possibly the most beautiful and evocative poem in the entire pagan community, which is the Charge of the Goddess by Dorian Valenti. And there's a line in it that says, "Behold, all acts of love and pleasure are my rituals." And 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 but that's pretty much I think pretty much most all pagans would agree with that. So you know, gay, transsexual or or bi or whatever, it, it really makes no never mind to us. You know, people should love each other. Beautiful. All right. Well, let's get into the like maybe I don't know if it's a darker subject, but you know, a, a different subject. So you were saying that death has started to become a quite a prominent thing in your life as you know with everyone death's something that connects us all what does church of all worlds i don't want to say believe now what can i say instead of that (laughs) (laughs) believes happen when you die i guess (laughs) let's work with that um you know uh when the the first member of our community for a long time we didn't have anybody died it was a part of our community the first person in our community died it was 1982 and that was like 20 years down the line and at the memorial service, one of the other members of the community, we were living in a big hippie community up in the woods, you know, homesteading community, about 100 families. And um, one of the early founders said, those of us who live the longest will bury all our dearest friends. That was a rather profound thing. And um, we all know that no one here gets out alive. You know, we understand that's the contract. You know, we get, we get a life and then it comes to an end eventually. And we, and we try to make the most of it. But the the longer you live, and I've been around for a while, um, then the more people that you love, you know, pass on, whatever that means. And whatever that means is kind of up for grabs, you know. Uh, we don't really have any dogma on the subject because how do you know? I mean, the only thing that we really have any kind of a solid thing is for those of us who remember having been here before and coming back. But that's not everybody. Clearly, not everybody does remember having been here before and coming back. So I'm not sure that everybody does that. Maybe that takes something special. Um, The Dalai Lama, you know, is a regular recurrent thing. The same guy keeps coming back and then they find out who the new kid is that's him and and it's a regular thing. So obviously this is well understood. There have been studies of children who have... um, strong memories of a former life that they've actually done research and looked them up and found out that, in fact, that person did exist, that they lived that, that the name and everything is completely correct. So we we can say we pretty much know for certain that some people come back. Now, where they go in between, <laughs> that seems to be variable because people report many different things. There seem to be some consistency in people who have died and been resurrected 
and then returned. Uh, they talk about um, uh, lifting out of their body, you know, and looking down on their body. So clearly there's a separation of the spirit from the body that occurs. And, and I think that the common metaphor, again, of water applies here. You know, that temporarily this little bit of spirit is housed in this vessel, which we are avatars. I really think the best analogy is um, is is game. You know, if we we create avatars to be our characters in a game, and we can enter into those, and we're just we're just getting to the threshold of being able to do it in a virtual reality. You know, put on the headset and completely be inside your character. But even in in second life, you can take a mouse view and look out through the eyes of your avatar. So I I kind of think that in fact that ancient Hindu concept of the avatar may very well be entirely correct. It's, it seems to be the most accurate one, is that we actually are, you know, spirit beings who enter into these bodies for the experience, the experience of a lifetime, you know, for all that may be, because I, I expect it's probably pretty boring over on the other side. It's, it's a lot going on over here. So much going on, in fact, that we ourselves can't help but making more games that we can create avatars to go into. And how many layers down does this go? And where are we? Are we in the middle, at the bottom, way up there at the top? We like to think that we're the, the top of the heap, but, you know, we used to think the Earth was the center of the universe, and we used to think our solar system was the only one, and that this was the only planet, and so on. And now we know that, well, it's a lot bigger than we thought, a lot bigger. So I kind of think that people get what they um, identify with the most. There are many afterworlds in different cultures. Some of them are quite elaborately detailed. The and and there are maps of the of the other worlds and the underworlds. There's the, you know, the uh, the, the journey through the seven gates of uh, the Sumerian underworld. You go through the journey through the Greek underworld, where you cross the the river Styx in the boat by the by the boatman Charon. And when someone dies, you got to put coins on their eyes so they'll have coins to pay the ferryman. The Egyptians had a whole elaborate thing that you had to go and and declare before 42 judges of the underworld that you had not done a bunch of really crappy things in your life and stuff. And then your the, your heart had to be judged and weighed against the feather of truth you know, to see whether you were worthy to enter into the, the, the blessed realm beyond. Most of, the, of them, they, you know, they have a, imagine a one-way trip, you know, you, you go through this life, then you go on. But there doesn't seem to be any really rational reason for that, you know. I should think that that if you want to come back, why not? You know, if you're over there, we came here in the first place. To, I mean, where did we come from? After all, you know, we're here. We are. We're a personality, a persona. Uh, we know that um, one of the first principles is that matter and energy cannot be destroyed; they can only change form. So the energy that animates us. Um, is in fact the uh, the fifth element is spirit. You know, it's solid, liquid, gas, and plasma, or earth, air, fire, and water. The states of matter, and then spirit that animates it all. Because you can have what's the difference between a dead body and a living body? They both look the same. They're both made of the same material, same elements. It's all right there. The only thing that's missing is the spirit. So you know, it's loose. It's it's really loose. I don't think that dogma regarding death is appropriate. I know that a lot of religions like to put on a thing, well, you have to follow these rules and behave in a certain way or you will be punished or rewarded, you know, after you die. And I don't see any really reason for that. 
I, I kind of like the um, the Tibetan uh, perspective is that when you pass to the other side, you're presented with a mirror that you look into your whole life, how it's all been. And you yourself kind of evaluate how you how well you did and what you're going to do for yourself. There's no other judge. There's just you. It's a mirror. You look at your life and then you from that determine now what? You know, you're going to come back and try again. Maybe you need another round of lessons. Maybe you're done and you can get off and not have to come back or maybe go to another realm or another world. Who knows? I mean, how many um, infinite um, gaming worlds and universes have we created in in our gaming worlds? You know, there's, there's an infinite number. And, and where do they exist? We play them on our computer, but there's no physical thing there. But they're a very real world we can enter and participate in. Uh, a lot of people in the leading edge of um, quantum physics are really convinced that this is just one of those. This is a virtual world that is very sophisticated. It may have been created by beings thousands of years more advanced than us, or millions, perhaps. I mean, life has been on this planet for a while. I mean, half a billion years since the Cambrian explosion. And um, look at how far we've come in the last 20 years in creating our uh, virtual worlds for gaming and stuff. Imagine how sophisticated those will be in 50 years or 100 or 1,000. And it was only 2,000 years ago that this whole current religious cycle of, of Christianity began. 2,000 years. Where will we be in 2,000 years? It's almost unimaginable. So you have to have that kind of perspective. And in that, all you can see death is as a transition from one phase to another. Maybe we just complete the game. You know, we've, we've, we've done all the stuff. Maybe the whole objective is to have, see what kind of an interesting or good death you can manage. Okay, that's a game over. Now we step back and you decide, okay, well, that was a pretty good game. Should we play another? Should we go back in the same one or should we go off in a different game? Or but maybe we can make a new game. Maybe we'll make a whole new world. You know, that's what gods do is make worlds, you know. Anyway, that's, that's pretty loose. Practically okay. speaking, However, um, the customs of what done, one does with someone when they die and how one dies gets into another whole level. And, and I think that's particularly interesting because there are many, many funeral practices and ways of disposing of the remains of the day, as it were. And um, a lot of people these days have been going for cremation, which they have their reasons. Some of us, However, remember the burning times when when we were burned at the stake, and the very idea of being uh, cremated is is just bah, anathema, you know. And for that, there is another way that some of us have done, and what we did with Morning Glory, and that's a green burial, where you take somebody and you don't embalm them and you don't do all that kind of stuff. You just clean them up and wrap them up in their in their you know ritual robes. And um, put them into a shallow enough grave that the organisms of the soil can enter in and recompose and decompose and recycle. And then you plant a fruit tree on the grave. And so when Morning Glory died, she was placed in an uh, unembalmed and a beautiful ceremony uh, on, on sacred land with an apple tree planted on her grave. And... Um, now, these six years later, that tree is beginning to bear fruit. And when people can go and eat from the fruit, 
some of the essence of her physical existence is passing back into the living world. And, and we like that. We like the recycling idea. We like the coming around again, both the spirit and the flesh, you know, that they should com complete the cycle. And some of us don't want to terminate that. You know, we don't want to say this is a one-way trip, and we don't want to say, okay, the body's done. We're going to burn it up or embalm it or encase it in concrete or do all the weird things people do. But again, you know, that's up for grabs. People can do whatever they feel best with and how they identify. We we really have no dogma or recommendations. It's a very personal thing. Wow. That's beautiful. I love that idea, the fruit tree. Yeah. What fruit would you pick? Is that the way you want to get buried? <laughs> yes, of course it is. I expect that when it's my time in another 40 or 50 years, I expect to be planted right next to Morning Glory. It's um, She's on our sacred land. Our church has a 55-acre um, sanctuary in Mendocino County, California, and it's been designated as a graveyard. So we've had several other green burials there, as well as cremains of people who were cremated, and that's okay, too, if that's what they want to do. And there's a spot next to her that um, when it's my time, I, I expect to be there. And right now, she's uh, near as I can figure out. Um, she's over there on the other side running the welcome committee, you know, because there's been <laughs> a lot of people coming over, you know. So I imagine her there with the fruit baskets, you know, and show them around. And, what, and she'll do that until I show up, you know. And then she can pass it on to somebody else and we'll go off together and I don't know what we'll do. Explore the universe and decide when we want to come back again. Next time we want to come back together. That much we've agreed on because um, it took us a long time to find each other in this life. And we only had 40 years, which wasn't nearly enough. We'd have liked another 40 if we could have gotten it. So next time we want to start right off at the beginning. Anyway, that's our little mythos, you know. I love that. So you, you do believe in the afterlife? Is that fair to say? Well, in an I, afterlife? I guess you would have to say that I believe in the continuity of spirit. I, I do. I do believe that. Um, as I say, I try to avoid beliefs, but I do have solid thing. I remember very clearly my own um, death and rebirth and and enough of my former life that that always had my parents freaked out when I would talk about things or say things that were, it, it, my former life was my maternal grandfather who died shortly before I was born. So I experienced the direct passing from that body to this one. They, they turned his bedroom that he died in into a nursery that I awoke in as a baby in the same house, in the same room, and with the same family. And I remember all of that very clearly as a, as a child. And I've um, done a lot of work with other children who, you know, a lot, a lot of times you run into kids, they have inexplicable nightmares. And you wonder, well, where would that come from? They haven't had any life to have experiences from. And if you really get down to it and get them to maybe draw pictures or to talk about it and stuff, what you're often dealing with is their memories of their previous death, uh, especially if it was a traumatic one. And that's what feeds these little nightmares. So you can open that up. And, and of course, there's people whose past memories are so strong and so explicit, they've written whole books of their former lives in great detail. Joan Grant wrote a whole series of past life books. Uh, Carrie Edwin Fallingstar has written several books. They're very clearly, they maintain that these are not made up. These are memories that they are expressing and putting forth in the stories. And you can go and look up the data, the historical data that's encountered in 
and it matches up that kind of stuff. So yeah, I believe uh, if I take that word, um, or I have understanding or knowledge, I guess I would have to say, of the continuity of spirit, at least in my case and that of many other people. Whether or not everybody gets that, I don't know. My father uh, used to maintain that he was a young soul. This was his first time around. He was a Christian, and he expected to go to heaven, and that was the end of it. But he he said that I convinced him that there are other options, <laughs> that um, I've clearly been around a few more, a few times. He regarded me as an old soul and that I'm on a longer journey than his. And I don't plan to go on a one-way trip. You know, it's a lot more to do out there. But, you know, again, um, I'm not presenting any of this as dogma, not telling anybody what they should believe. It's, uh, it's really up for grabs. Oh, I love that. So you've got the knowledge of a, a past life. Would you say that you're afraid of death? Because I feel like a lot of people are afraid of it because they, they have no idea. We're afraid of the unknown. No, I'm, I'm not afraid of death. Um, I'm a wizard. Wizards and witches are not afraid of death. We're not afraid of the dark, as we often say. The dark is afraid of us. <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, you know, Terry Pratchett, who's our favorite author of many of us, um, uh, often talks about death. Death is a character in his novels. Um, who speaks in all capital letters, and it's marvelous character. He just permeates throughout all the stories. And um, a thing that we often do, well, not often do, but a thing that is an ancient tradition that is carried through by a number of groups today are the mysteries, the mysteries of a journey through the underworld. The Eleusinian mysteries are probably the most complete, and uh, we developed uh, a reconstruction of those in the Church of All Worlds, oh gosh, 30 years ago, and those are still continuing. And other groups have done this as well. Quite a few of them are doing beautiful versions. And the mysteries, they take you on a journey into and through the underworld. You know. And um, one of my favorite quotes is from Winston Churchill. He said, when you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> so the, the mysteries are about that. You know, uh, they take you in a journey through the underworld and out the other side. And it was said in ancient times that they never they never revealed the content of the mysteries. But you, you can't. You can't reveal an experience. I mean you can't re, you can't explain to somebody what sex is like if they've never had it, or an acid trip, or or you know, uh, a death and rebirth experience or any number of things. You just can't. Childbirth. I mean, you can't explain these things to somebody. They're a mystery you have to experience. And the ancient mysteries were so powerful that nobody ever explained them or told what they were. But they did say that those who had experienced them had no fear of death. And I would have to concur that that is one of the things, the gifts of the mysteries, is that you come out the other side of that and you have no fear of death. Wow. What advice would you have for someone who is afraid of death? Do you have any tips? Well, um, that's an interesting question. You know, I don't think I've been asked that. Let me think. Um, there are some wonderful books, quite a few of them, and they're easy enough to look up on the journey of the soul, you know, the soul's journey after death. It's almost a recurrent title that one comes across. And um, some of these are really helpful because they often include many interviews with people uh, with from 
people who remember their former lives or people who have died and been, been resurrected in the hospital or something. And there's they, they tease out common threads. One of the best was written by a pagan physician who was the, the coroner for Queen Elizabeth from, in England. And it's a fabulous book. It's called The Soul's Journey After Death. Um, so those help, I think, um, just to see examples of what other people have done. It's just some research on, on reincarnation research, you know, after life, death experiences. There's a lot, really. People have been doing serious research on this stuff. There's some beautiful movies that have been made that uh, give a nice view. Just in the last few years, at least three different ones showed the Mexican concept of death and afterlife very beautifully. And they were The Corpse Bride and The Book of Life. And um, what was the other one? Oh, God, there was another one, too. It was the name of the kid, and I don't remember the kid's name. But these were very, very nice and very colorful. This coming season... The season of um, Samhain, as we call it, which means summer's end in Old Celtic, uh, popularly known to many people as Halloween, but the, the third harvest, the time of death we celebrate, there's a lot that is done at this time. In pagan groups, there are rituals generally that involve some journey into the underworld. It's regarded that the veil is thin between the worlds. And a very common ritual that's done is universally is the dumb supper, where you simply uh, prepare a meal to share, and you invite your beloved dead, you know, by name. You call upon them to come and join the feast, and you set out a plate for them, and you eat the meal in silence, just going inward in silence and just listening to what may come through from the other side as the, as the dishes are passed around. Usually there's a bunch of small little things that are, you know, food of the dead, like mushrooms, underworld things like that, you know. And these are passed around, and everybody takes one, and then one is put on the plate for the dead, and it goes around and around in total silence. And it's a powerful ritual, very deeply moving, as people remember. There's a there's a saying, a widespread saying in, in pagandom, and it is, um, what is remembered lives. So we, you know, sharing our memories of those we've loved and have passed on um, is a way of keeping them alive in us, in their presence. I mean, and think of that, the immortality, the only ultimate immortality that we get is if our stories continue to be remembered and passed down. You know, we have the immortality of ancient people who lived thousands of years ago. You know, we remember, we tell their stories and we make movies about their stories. You know, Jason and the Argonauts, you know, the, you know, Hercules, um, you know, Arthur and Guinevere and Lancelot and the Knights of the Round Table, Robin Hood, all these heroic stories. These were real people who once lived and who lived big enough that their stories continue to be told and retold and embroidered and all that down through the ages until everybody knows them. You know, one of the most powerful living figures that we have that people often don't really appreciate is Santa Claus. You know, I am a devout believer in Santa Claus because every year the spirit of this very benevolent person who actually lived, you know, is a real life person who lived, is remembered so much that in that spirit, many, many people around the world take on that persona for, for a short time, for a season to convey that generosity. And they even go to the trouble to look the part, you know, and dress up the part, you know. And I, of course, done this myself, and and uh, it's a wonderful experience. It really is because you're channeling 
uh, a very ancient and very kindly benevolent spirit, as it were. So, you know, there's that. So we have these positive spirits that go on, you know, Jesus and Buddha and Santa Claus. And we have negative ones like Dracula, you know, and, and, and Hitler and stuff that, you know, we still remember. You know, some of them we remember as a bad example, you know. But we may recall it. We may recall, you know, this looks awfully familiar, what's going on over here, for example, in politics in this country in particular. I don't need to say much more about that because I know the whole world is watching with the same sense of dread that we are here. So there you go. What is remembered lives. Nice. I could honestly, I feel like I could speak to you for a week straight and still have more questions. So thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat with me today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Monica. This has been fun. I'm always glad to have these kind of conversations. And we do have Church of All Worlds in, in Australia. So look up some of our folks down there. Absolutely. Well, blessed be and may you never thirst. There you have it. We're now a little more informed about what death means, at least from Oberon and the Church of All Worlds perspective. Like I said to him, I could have spoken to Oberon for hours and hours. He's such an interesting guy. He's written a bunch of books. He creates beautiful art and makes jewellery. If you want to check out his stuff or read more about the Church of All Worlds, I've chucked all the details in the show notes. Join me next week when I chat with Bhakta Das. He's a Brahmin priest and the communications director of ISKCON Australia. That's the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, a.k.a. the Hare Krishna Movement. We're going to speak about their views of death, funeral customs and ceremonies, and, of course, if there's an afterlife. Now, before you go, if you do like what you hear, ratings and reviews are incredibly important. I'm an independent creator, so I can use all the love I can get. If you're on Apple Podcasts, it would be just fabulous if you could rate and review how you feel fit. If you want to keep up with all the news, you can also jump on the Facebook and Instagram pages. All the info, again, is in our show notes. For now, though, stay safe, stay positive, and in the words of Oberon Zell, blessed be and may you never thirst. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.